This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, which which I think marks our third show in three weeks. We're almost getting back to once a week, although in truth our, our last show was kind of a half show, but we are stepping it up a bit. You know, buckle your seatbelt, folks, because today we expect to be a real fusillade. Oh, and Mr. Millen does want to apologize for not putting in a trigger warning before what you just heard. No pun intended. No pun intended. Oh. All right, let's start with this, uh, this, this calendar, which I was given at the beginning of the year. A few months back, we quoted from it because it had some interesting little tidbits of trivia in it. Let's start with the entry for July 13th. That day, July 13th, was the birthday of the conservative English art historian Sir Kenneth Mackenzie Clark, who grew up as a member of one of Britain's wealthiest families. You may remember Kenneth Clark from his bestseller, Civilization, which was made into a PBS series. I have a copy of the book, which was uh, belonged to my mother on my left hand, and the, it's copyright 1969. So it was a while back, but it was a worthy effort. But we're talking about Sir Kenneth Clark because he once offered a profile of his family, which was among England's wealthiest clans, characterizing them with his dusty, dry sense of humor. He admitted, there may be families richer than mine, but none are idler. Speaking of idle Britishers, we have the June 10th entry, which commemorated the 100th birthday of Philip Montbatten, father of the Prince of Wales and consort of Elizabeth II. He, of course, passed away this year and was known for his scores of insensitive gaffes, insults, and tasteless jokes, which are friendly categories we can't resist here at Radio Parallax. Mr. Miller wanted to add that he did also have some bad qualities. The calendar noted that after his 1966 remark, British women can't cook, the royal family's prince-in-law went on an unrepentant tour to offend people and groups on six continents. He managed to insult both women and marriage with the sexist swipe. I don't think a prostitute is more moral than a wife, but they're doing the same thing. Back in 1992, he even poo-pooed his own royal marriage, remarking in an interview, I'd much rather have stayed in the Navy, frankly. World leaders were also targets for his unbridled comments. In 2003, he mocked the president of Nigeria, who was dressed in traditional robes, saying, You look like you're ready for bed. And memorably, he once told the Paraguayan dictator General Strossner, It's a pleasure to be in a country that isn't ruled by its people. I believe we did note one of his, uh, his great comments, which came from his obituary. In 1995, he asked a Scottish driving instructor, how do you keep the natives off the booze long enough to pass the test? And in 1998, he glibly questioned a Briton who was just back from New Guinea, saying, you managed not to get eaten then. And since we're on a roll with things English, let's go to the June 11th, which asked the question, was he England's worst poet? We could use Dr. Andy for this one. But it noted that that date was the birthday of George Wither, who lived from 1588 to 1667, described as a prolific but limited English poet, pamphleteer, and satirist. He got this mixed review from a Scottish poet. Wither was a man of real genius, but he seems to have been partially insane. Another Scottish critic referred to Wither's endless didactic and pious poems, if they can be called poems. 
Evidently, Wither got on the wrong side of the English Civil War and he faced execution in 1693. Poet Sir John Denham came to Wither's defense, well, rather backhandedly. He persuaded the king to spare Wither's life, arguing, so long as Wither lived, I shall not be accounted as the worst poet in England. Yes, Dr. Andy Jones, if you're listening, please give us some feedback on that one. I'd like to also jump to a couple of memes because I guess that's what we're all being sent these days if we are on if we're dumb enough to be on social media and and yes I am in that category still. I want to thank Janice for posting the following. The lockdown will have demonstrated three things. One, our economy collapses as soon as it stops selling useless stuff to over-indebted people. Two, it's perfectly possible to greatly reduce pollution. And three, the lowest paid people in the country are the most essential to its functioning. Hard to argue. I'm also indebted to my friend Sammy for posting the following items, from which I will select. There was actually 21 points, which he sent around to his pals. I'm going to take my favorite seven, which would be, when one door closes and another door opens, well, that means you're probably in prison. And age 60 might be the new 40, but 9 p.m. is the new midnight. And remember, if you lose a sock in the dryer, it comes back to you as a Tupperware lid that doesn't fit on any of your containers. Another good one is, when I say the other day, I could be referring to any time between yesterday and 15 years ago. I guess I should, should have qualified that Sammy is of the Social Security age. Whether you're over or under 65 years of age, I think you'll like the, the following three, which are, I hate when a couple argues in public and I miss the beginning, so I don't know whose side I'm on. Also, when someone asks what I did over the weekend, I squint and ask them, well, what did you hear? And lastly, there's a word for someone who unexpectedly comes into your life out of nowhere, who makes your heart race and changes you forever. We call those people cops. Sam also posted a, a graph showing the uh, number of new cases of COVID in a weekly period and how it spiked over the winter and is back spiking again. It's now crossed the 100,000 threshold and looking like it's going to keep climbing. In conjunction with that, we have this item, which I think is worthy of mention, which is simply a piece by Ariel Chinkle, who appeared, which appeared on Yahoo Life, which notes that both the CDC and World Health Organization advise people who've had COVID to still get the vaccine. Noted the brief piece, as COVID-19 cases continue to surge across the country, public health experts continue to express the urgent need for eligible people who have not yet gotten the shot to do so. That having COVID-19 means you don't need to get vaccinated is a myth that global health experts are fiercely trying to combat. As anti-vaxxers continue to claim that, quote, natural immunity, unquote, either from prior infection or from apparently having an immune system stronger than that of a deadly, highly infectious virus, means getting a vaccine is not necessary. And as a consequence, the CDC and WHO are ramping up efforts to encourage all eligible adults to get vaccinated, including those who have recovered from COVID-19. And we're going to talk about disinformation and misinformation and uh, black PR before we're done here today. But I have to say, I was really shocked a couple months ago when a doctor, longtime doctor friend of mine, who I went to med school with, basically went completely ballistic when I informed her that I'd gotten a shot after having had COVID. She said, that's immoral. You have immunity. You're taking a shot away from somebody that needs it. And then proceeded to suggest that I must have pulled some kind of a fast one with the local county authorities to have gotten the shot. 
because, as she said, I was not 70 and was no longer practicing. Now, I will grant this was not my sanest friend. I don't want to belabor this point, but an awful lot of people I, who I know who are otherwise intelligent people are buying into a lot of crap that's being put out there by just propagandists. Anyway, moving right along, here's just a little little item I pulled out of the New Yorker, which, which is going to earn some plaudits today from us. From the Talk of the Town section of a few weeks back, someone just mentioned that, well, Donald Trump developed the U.S. Space Force, designed as a separate branch of the military. And if you think about it, President Biden apparently affirmed that decision. Biden said at a Council on Foreign Relations event in May, space is a very dynamic domain right now. There's a lot happening. All I can say to that is, if we develop the Space Force to protect us from asteroid impacts and spend a lot of money preventing that, that would be money well spent. Money that would not necessarily be well spent would be to update what used to be called the Dew Line, used to be distant early warning radar systems. Now it's called the North Warning System. I suppose to, to show people that we're not worried about a nuclear attack from Mexico. But no, both the U.S. and Canada are about to spend a boatload of money to update this system. But the truth is, in an all-out nuclear war, those missiles coming over the North Pole are not going to make a great deal of difference to either the United States or the future of the planet. Meanwhile, over in China, satellites are showing that the Chinese are building nuclear silos. And I think we'll just move off of that depressing topic to this highly depressing topic. This week, a former Air Force intelligence analyst got sentenced to four years in prison for leaking details of U.S. drone operations to a journalist, an act his lawyers say was motivated by irreconcilable moral conflict. In a letter to the judge, Daniel Hale described the most harrowing day of my life when in 2012 he watched a U.S. drone fire at a suspected car bomb manufacturer driving in Afghanistan. It missed by several feet, and Hale watched as a woman emerged frantically pulling someone from a car. Her two daughters, one dead, were later found in a nearlight dumpster. Hale pled guilty to violating the Espionage Act in revealing information about U.S. strikes that showed that the U.S. often ended up killing civilians, which Hale called an undeniable cruelty. Prosecutors rather predictably said the documents he leaked were used by ISIS fighters to avoid detection, which is not at all likely. There was a very interesting discussion of, of this uh, the, the sentencing of Daniel Hale on KALW last week, which is a Bay Area PBS station. I believe it was the Rose Aguiar program. And they explained how when someone is prosecuted on the Espionage Act, you are specifically not allowed to tell the court why you did what you did. Well, at least until when you're sentenced. Then, then you get to say, well, here's why this happened. This is a horrible story. We think we need to stay on it and uh, hope we will do so. Hope a, lo- hope a lot of people will do so. Let's take a whack at tech, shall we? Writing in the New York Times, Steve Lower reported that a decade after it trounced Ken Jennings on Jeopardy, IBM's Watson is a reminder of the pitfalls of technological hype and hubris. Time and time again during its 110-year history, IBM has ushered in new technology and sold it to corporations. Watson, a room-sized supercomputer with thousands of processors running millions of lines of code, was supposed to be IBM's next wave to ride. IBM poured millions into promoting Watson as a benevolent digital assistant with boundless applications from curing cancer to tackling climate change. Laura notes that IBM's scientists tried to explain to their sales-driven corporate higher-ups that Watson was a computer custom-built for a quiz show, and in real life could fail a second-grade reading comprehension test. 
That wasn't the marketing message IBM wanted to push. The limitations became clear soon enough. Watson was deployed to mine and make sense of huge troves of medical data to improve treatment, but it couldn't handle gaps in the data. There was another initiative to create a bedside diagnostic tool based on patients' health records and scientific literature. Well, that got bogged down because Watson struggled to decipher doctor's notes. Hello? I have to pause to remind, remind myself of the shock a good friend of mine who works in Silicon Valley expressed when it turned out that electronic health records weren't solving all the problems of medicine. I guess someone in Silicon Valley tried to promote that it would. Anyway, Lauren notes that Watson's primary application now is automating customer service inquiries, which is a rather steep fall from grace for one of modern computers' supposedly brightest stars. Of course, we do want to say in defense of Watson, it did beat Ken Jennings. On the other hand, I think Ken Jennings was saying his, his own defense, he has no trouble reading at the second grade level. And frankly, I cannot resist the emo Phillips joke at this point, wherein several years ago he pointed out that, well, a computer did beat me at chess, but it turned out to be no match for me in kickboxing. From there, we must segue into this piece from New Scientist, the July 3rd issue, which, which I've been sitting on because I thought it was amazing. The headline of the piece is, AIs don't understand simple physics. The subheadline notes that people can predict how objects will interact as they roll and collide, but AIs struggle to do this. The piece by Chris Stoker-Walker starts out noting that artificial intelligence struggles to comprehend how objects interact with each other as they roll, collide, drop, and drape, flunking a set of benchmark tests designed to see how intelligent it really is. The so-called Physion benchmark was designed by Daniel Baer at Stanford and his colleagues. They used eight scenarios to showcase physical phenomenon which most humans understand innately. AIs were given the opening moments of the scenario, which were computer-generated in 3D, featuring objects that were designed to interact with each other. These included a napkin being draped over objects on a table, a set of dominoes teetering toward collapse, and a ball rolling down a slope. The tests were designed to probe how well computers understood what it was seeing, quote-unquote seeing, and how good it was at predicting what would happen next. Now, it was a few years ago we knitted on on this program that... that (laughs) Then the algorithms were having a very hard time identifying what they were looking at. The piece by Chris Stoker-Walker says that algorithms have now gotten good at seeing a scene and saying, this is a bottle, this is a car. He was interested in very different types of behavior. How well can an algorithm interact physically with scenes? Some academics believe that having a firm grasp of what objects are in view will automatically lead to a deeper understanding of how the world works and how those objects interact. Bear said, for various reasons, I was suspicious of that, and those suspicions appear well-founded. Bear and colleagues asked both humans and AIs to watch a 1.5-second snippet of a scene, then predict what would happen next. The tests, which were hard enough that 25% of the guesses humans made were wrong, were just too difficult for most AIs. The worst AI predictions included that an object would dissolve, or it might pass through another object without any effect. Some AIs predicted that an object would just disappear entirely, I guess like COVID-19. Said Bear, that to me is a very worrying failure, noting that some AIs don't think that objects are things that continue to exist beyond the moment you're looking at them. 
And that allows us to jump right into another interesting piece in New Scientist, in this case from the July 31st issue. The title of this article is, Where's My Robot Car? Piece by Jeff Hecht had the subheadline: is the dream of self-driving vehicles going the way of the jetpack. Jeff Hecht starts out by noting that some of the latest commercially available um, additions to cars do wonders for their computing smarts such as adaptive cruise control, which allows for occasional hands-free use in very specific road conditions. Although, I don't know, I've had cruise control in my cars for the past couple of decades. I, I don't know, I'm not sure what they're talking about. But he does note that some observers are now openly saying the dream of full autonomy is a mirage. Creating robot vehicles that are able to tackle any kind of road or traffic situations is just too tough a nut to crack. He asks, are they right? And if so, what exactly is keeping down the self-driving car? Heck notes the dream of all-electric robo-taxis grew from a series of autonomous vehicle challenges launched by the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. That was more than a decade and a half ago. They showed that sensors and computers could guide driverless cars through a couple of hundred kilometers of terrain, including mocked-up city streets. Rapid advances in machine vision, Artificial intelligence, inexpensive radar, and digital mapping fed the optimism that consumer versions were just around the corner. And there has been some progress. Since 2009, self-driving vehicles made by Waymo, part of Google's parent company, have driven 30 million test kilometers on public roads in over 25 cities. Some of those cars have even lacked steering wheels, accelerators, or even human-operated brakes. He goes on to update what's currently in a lot of vehicles on the road. He then notes that in 2015, Elon Musk's Tesla started offering a level two automation option, one that can change a car's direction and speed simultaneously, called autopilot. Despite that name, Tesla warns that, quote, current autopilot features require active driver supervision and do not make the vehicle autonomous, unquote. In 2018, GM introduced a level two super cruise option in its premium Cadillac line. Not sure I like this part. The system tracks drivers' eyes and warns them if they look away from the road for more than a few seconds. He notes that other car manufacturers, including Toyota, Honda, and Volvo, plan similar systems for highway driving in private vehicles starting in 2023. In Japan earlier this year, Honda even delivered what it says is the first street-legal Level 3 self-driving car. Level 3 autonomy is when the driver can relinquish control in certain circumstances and do other stuff, like read a book while the computer does its thing. Peace notes that Audi had announced a similar feature back in 2017, but European regulators have yet to be persuaded to allow such autonomy on the road, and and the firm gave up last year. And of course, there was a series of high-profile accidents that have given a lot of people pause. A woman was killed while pushing a bicycle across the street in Arizona. The National Transportation Safety Board investigation of that Fatal collision concluded that the car detected something 5.6 seconds before impact, but couldn't identify it. And that the safety operator on board supposedly to prevent such occurrences was looking away from the road for an extended period of time. The safety driver is now awaiting trial for negligent homicide over the death. The NTSB report criticized the inadequate safety culture in Uber's autonomous vehicle division at that time. The piece quotes an Sam Abwell Samad, the consulting firm Guidehouse, he's an engineer who formerly developed car safety systems, 
saying that the general problem with driverless technology is that its developers often have no background in safety-critical systems. Instead, instead, they come from the technology business, where move fast and break things works well. He notes that nobody dies if a photo app fails. It's a different story when a ton of metal crashes at highway speed. But they note that blaming cars and their developers masks some more fundamental problems with level 3 autonomy. A study at the University of Southampton in the UK back in 2017 showed that people took an average of about five seconds to take control of an autonomous vehicle, with individual times ranging from two to nearly 26 seconds. The piece notes that this fundamental limitation seems to undermine any hope that humans and vehicles can somehow share responsibility for reacting to unexpected situations. For that reason, many car makers are hoping to bypass level three autonomy altogether and proceed straight to level four. <laughs> Here, that'll solve the problem, in which the vehicle has sole control in certain defined areas. Peace goes on to explain how, at first, they were planning to put laser-directed um, detection systems, laser radar, basically laser-based radars or lidars in the cars, but they were very expensive, so they decided instead just use cameras and AI. But in the last few years, LiDAR has gotten apparently a lot cheaper. Abel Samad said that even with LiDAR, autonomous car sensor systems will be brittle. They often fail on something that would be no problem for a human. The piece quotes Missy Cummings, director of Duke University's Humans and Autonomy Lab, saying people need to sit back and do a fundamental rethink of how to make self-driving cars. The current way we're approaching computer vision is not going to scale and it's not going to work. The key problem to her is that machine learning depends on combining individual sensor inputs, lacking the power of top-down reasoning that humans develop from an overall understanding of the world. Machine learning works only from the bottom up. She says we can instinctively tell, for example, whether lane markings are complete or dashed lines, even if they're partly covered by snow, or that a stop sign remains a stop sign, even if it's partially obscured. We can instantly recognize the implications of an emergency vehicle heading our way. Machine learning has problems with all of them and even lacks the basic intuitive understanding of the laws of physics that people possess. See prior article we just talked about. Anyway, the punchline of the article is that in certain carefully set up situations, it will be possible to operate self-driving cars with reasonable safety. Here's a couple stats that caught my attention. The U.S. has 6.5 million kilometers of public roads. Only 300,000 kilometers of that meet current super cruise requirements. Of those that aren't covered by the system, 4.2 million kilometers are paved, meaning the remaining 2 million kilometers of American roads are unpaved. They lack markings and they often lack signs. The need to upgrade those roads to be robot-friendly is a hidden cost most people are not thinking of. Well, anyway, I'm not worried about any of this. I'm just complaining to get around on my jetpack in the future. Or, or perhaps my flying car. This one says I got about three minutes left, so why don't we do uh, the first of several installments of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. We're going to go to the the Week magazine for these selections. This comes from the last issue in June. 
at which time they noted that it was a good week for, well, I would say political correctness. With the news that a New Jersey school district is removing the names of all holidays from the school calendar so as to not offend anyone. That offends me. Well, it offends me too. But the decision came after a raucous public meeting about the board's decision to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day. And their solution was every holiday will now be listed as a day off, so we don't have to explain to anyone with hurt feelings. Cut the baby in half. It was that same week, a bad week for fear of missing out, after Donald Trump sent a wistful message to President Biden before his summit with Russians Vladimir Putin to please give Putin, quote, my warmest regards, unquote. And finally, it was an ugly week that week for congressional experience after Jason Riddle, a New Hampshire man facing criminal charges for storming the Capitol during the January 6th insurrection, announced he's running for a seat in the House. Said Riddle, if you're running for office, any attention is good attention. All right, let's go into the round. The week after that, the magazine noted it was a good week for making lemonade when you're given lemons. After... (laughs) The historic western drought left drinking water in the city of Sacramento tasting like dirt and algae. Sacramento city officials said the water was safe and they advised people to add lemon juice if they find the taste unpleasant. That same week, it was a bad week for the lost cause after the House voted on 285 to 120 to remove from the Capitol Rotunda the statues of Confederate President Jefferson Davis and former Supreme Court Justice former Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger Taney. He was author of the notorious Dred Scott decision, which ruled that black people had no rights, which the white man was bound to respect. Yeah, I have to to say, his statue could go. And finally, it was an ugly week that week for the insensitive, with the news that Brandeis University is advising faculty not, not to use the term trigger warning, because the word trigger may have gun associations and, and may itself be triggering. A newly updated oppressive language list also discouraged the use of the terms killing it for doing well and take a shot for trying to do something. Hey, what were you thinking? Oops. All right. We need to take a short break. Let's do that. Plenty more. Plenty more in our second half. Stick around. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more. Plenty more. 